All right, everybody, this is Ken Krug and Tom Harrison with Eternal Core, the podcast and vidcast series that we've been, uh, this is like our 27th, wow, we've, middle, now, today we've got Christian Smith. I want to tell you a fun story there. We were out at the offices of Renaissance Ranch. They're one of the, the, the core sponsors of Eternal Core's event on the 29th and 30th of March, and we had Alema Harrington there. Uh, telling some of the amazing things about his life, and you know he does a lot of public speaking, and um, and we have a you know we 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 gather what we call a core story, and all of a sudden um, we had Christian open up and share his background and what got him into this industry and this profession, and and some of the challenges and struggles he's been through, and and I remember both Tom and I we looked at each other and says, now that's a core story. And he's, he's consent, he's been willing to share with us today um, some of the things he's been through. And um, Christian, thank you for spending time with us today. You're welcome. Thank you for being open and being willing to be vulnerable and share some of your background. We, we, we took a, a road trip down to St. George, talking to a lot of treatment centers down there. They all know this guy. He's, he's made quite an impact in the industry. Thanks for being with us today. You're welcome. Mind giving us some of your background and, and, and share your story with us? I'd be happy to. Thanks, Chris. So I, uh, I think it starts that you need to know that I was raised in the predominant. Well, I was born and raised in Utah. Okay. And active LDS. Yeah. Mom and dad were active. I have a lot of siblings. There are eight children that are living, one that's passed on. And uh, we were always active LDS. And I don't want to offend anybody. We were always active Latter-day Saints. There you go. So, <laughs> uh, and I never struggled with I any serious substance abuse at all growing up. I, I remember sampling alcohol at, at age 13 in that area, didn't like it, sampled the cigarette, the butt end of a cigarette, and uh, that didn't do anything. And So other than that, life was pretty, we were middle class, uh, come from an insurance background family. Dad uh, owned and operated John Henry Smith Insurance, and so we didn't have a lot, but we didn't go without. I grew up in the Cottonwood Holiday area, and uh, uh, went to Cottonwood High School, uh, active in sports. I, I heard Kel's story a little bit, and uh, I understand a, a little bit about that because I, too, was active in sports. wasn't as good as Kel was, nor was I as big. <laughs> but uh, that was where I found some of my validation, was in my ability to succeed on the sports court of any kind. So we, we get through high school, didn't have any serious trauma. Uh, the family dynamics are interesting. Growing up in our house, you, you didn't raise your voice in the house. Uh, Mom was, uh, that, that's of the devil sort of thing. <laughs> so we didn't raise our voice. But the only time it was okay to raise our voice is if we were playing sport. Then we could, we could be aggressive or even get kicked out of a game or something. And I remember kind of my dad kind of going, that's my boy. And, but in the house, in the normal communication, was, it was pretty quiet. Uh, I never, I have, to this day, I, I've never seen my, or heard my father raise his voice at my mother. Uh, and, and this is important because I, it, it set up expectations for me in the form of relationships and how I, I thought they should be. So I go, I graduate high school, Cottonwood High School. Um, I was a cheerleader in my senior year because I wasn't going to play any basketball. They had a new coach. And uh, that, that comes up. You're laughing at because I was a cheerleader? <laughs> no, I, I sneezed. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that's kind of important because uh, I probably broke my back as a cheerleader, and it would, the, the manifestations wouldn't come for some years after that. 
So I graduated high school, loved it, was a good experience. Go on a mission real fast. Um, I graduate high school in June, and by August, I'm in South Africa on a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Had a great experience. My grandfather had, uh, had served in that mission. My great-grandfather, Nicholas Grosbeck Smith, was the mission president of that mission, so there was some history and heritage, and I'm sure some strings were pulled to get me there. But I had a really good experience. It was really, really good. I come home from the mission after a successful mission, and uh, quickly was in love and married uh, shortly, about four months after I got back, my wife, Kelly. And we celebrate 37 years of marriage at the end of this month of Congratulations. February. And I'd tell you the, the date, but I might get it wrong, and then if this is on film, I'm in trouble. It's, yeah. It is on film. <laughs> so. And remember, it's Valentine's Day. We don't want to get you in trouble twice. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, we marry, and that's when my life started to take a different twist. That's where some of, some of my pains and um, confusion began. Kelly came from a family where their communication style within the family was very assertive. At times, I have defined it as yelling. And uh, so where, it didn't matter where you were, if you were in public or private, if there was an issue going on that somebody was concerned about, it was talked about and talked about loud. And so uh, Kelly and I marry. I do something silly. And uh, she communicates the way she was brought up to communicate, which was to be assertive. What in the heck are you doing? And when she did this, there was something inside my heart that didn't know how to cope with that. And it just hurt. I was very confused. And I, I, was, I felt like I kind of wanted to, to crawl under a table and hide. In a basketball game or a sport of any kind, you know, I, I'm a, let's go. I, I'm, a, I'm assertive. Let's go. I'll, let's, Kale's a big man. I heard his story, and I know Kale. He's 6'8". Let's go, Kale. Let's play one-on-one -on -one or horse. But in this one-on-one -on -one intimate relationship communication, the way she came at me really hurt me bad. Three years after we're married, I am, uh, it's early spring. I'm on my way to work at a place called The Store uh, on a motorcycle, and I'm in a motorcycle accident where they sent me to the hospital by ambulance, and uh, there's broken bones and a lot of road rash that they had to spend a lot of time getting cleaning up. It was painful. They sent me home from the hospital with a large bottle of pain pills, uh, Percodan. Uh -huh. On the bottle label, it said, take one or two as needed for physical pain. And when I did that, it worked. The physical pain went away. It didn't hurt anymore. I don't recall how, but I did find another way to cope with this pain. That if I took three or four, pain this pain away. didn't hurt anymore. Yeah. So I would heal from that motorcycle accident and, and go off of the pain pills. But uh, you can't play basketball on the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Saints basketball circuit, which really was just ward basketball, without finding yourself in the emergency room with bad ankles. Each time I would do that, they would send me home with a bottle of pain pills. So the window, the window over about a period of five years after that motorcycle accident, the window began to shorten, where I was using pain pills more and more and more to cope with the pain, <coughs> with the pain, and with stresses of life. And also because when one stops taking opiates, you become very ill. And we call it withdrawals. I didn't like it. I just didn't want to do it. So for many years, I was, I was taking opiates uh, due in large part due to not wanting to get sick. 
it was in this five or four or five years after the motorcycle accident that we uncovered some pain that was most likely the result of a broken back while being a cheerleader in high school, oh, yeah. oh, wow. which was really bad unless you're a guy like me. Now I've got carte blanche. I can go to any doctor's office, say, will you look at my back, uh, knowing they're going to take a picture and they're going to say, you got a bad back, sir. You need to see a specialist, and what do you take for pain? <coughs> so I, I would go down that road for many, many years, building up a tolerance where I'm taking more and more pain pills. And while I take more and more pain pills, I find myself violating more and more of my own personal value system. The net result of that was feeling more of this kind of pain. Ultimately, looking back, the, the, the pain I would associate with feelings of shame, gotcha. not, not guilt. Uh, I'm a big believer that guilt's good, healthy. Christian, you made a mistake. Maybe I'll look at making a correction. Shame takes it further, and for me anyway, said, Christian, you are the mistake. And there's nothing you can do to stop that, brother. So I began further and further down this road. Meanwhile, Kelly and I have a family growing, um, four children, two older boys and, and, and two younger girls. The boys are old enough to see that there's something going astray here. Uh, they didn't know the specifics, nor did my wife, Kelly, know the specifics, but they all knew that I was taking pain pills and that my behaviors were becoming more and more odd. It, uh, it gets bad, and, and um, I'm now not, be able, I'm not able to feel, to make a prescription that's written to last 30 days. It won't last 30 days. It lasts almost two weeks. At that point, I began buying those pain meds on the street, and that's expensive. A dollar a milligram is what I would be paying, and, and it became very, very expensive. So now I'm affecting the family financial status, and then Kelly and I make some arrangements to try and curtail this spending by taking me off the checking account. And I'm still working. At that point, I'm working in the medical device arena, representing cardiovascular grafts and mechanical heart valves. And we're doing well, but I'm spending a lot of the money. Uh, the problem with c taking me off the checking account was it created more stress in my dialogue with Kelly. Mm -hmm. We would just argue about what's this money for, and I, I was of the belief, like Rick Majerus, that the best, uh, well, the best defense is a really good offense. So I would be really offensive to Kelly until she would re relent and give me the money that I asked for, at which time I would quickly go down and secure those medicines, if you will, the pain pills yeah. that I needed. So we get to the point where it's getting really bad. I've tried a few treatment centers, sh short-lived, didn't really want to. I was doing it because my wife, kids, and parents and family thought it was a good idea and not able to hold employment for long stance at all. I'm losing jobs quickly. And uh, in about 2000, well, 2001, I decided it was a good idea to not only take pain pills, but to take some alcohol at the same time. The net result of that was uh, my first interaction with the legal community in the form of a DUI. Mm. And, and, and that could have been a catalytic event to say, maybe you ought to take a look, but it wasn't. And uh, it was a, an event that I remember uh, strongly because I did have a Catholic event when I was picked up at the jail uh, by my wife. She had her oldest son, Adam, with her. She did that on purpose in hopes that, uh, that it would help me come to myself 
It didn't. I felt more shame from that, and the result of more shame was more self-medicating. And so in 2004, uh, things have gotten really bad, and I recognize it's pretty bad. And we we're counseled that until we can get the pain management under control, there may not be wise to go look at treatment as an option. So in 2004, I, was, I went and had back surgery, where they fused, caged, and screwed my L5 and S1. I remember going into that surgery with two thoughts. The first one, what if it didn't work? I'd, I'd had a family member and friends have back surgeries where it got worse. Right. My second fear, well, what if it works? Mm. Then what do I do? How do I manage this sort of thing? Wow. I remember that night in the hospital realizing something had changed. The pain that I was feeling wasn't the pain that radiated down my left side and to my leg. It was the pain of just somebody had beaten up my low back. And I knew that was different. And as fate and as deity would have it, I healed from that and to this day have no back pain of any significance. Nothing that, that an ibuprofen wouldn't help, wouldn't, wouldn't mm -hmm. fix. But yeah, I still have this pain. Still don't know how to communicate with w my wife very well. Uh, still don't know how to cope with stress at all. And uh, so I quickly picked up uh, gambling. Gambling seemed to alleviate that, that pain a little mm -hmm. bit. And the problem with gambling, I had already violated the, my value of the word of wisdom, particularly with alcohol. I could justify my taking pain pills. I still have a temper recommend because I got a piece of paper that says it's okay, mm -hmm. even though I'm doing it illegally. But I, I couldn't justify my cons consumption of alcohol. But I already, I already broke that barrier. So gambling, I'm a pretty good gambler. Not that sarcasm a little bit. But when you add the component of alcohol, uh, I'm a terrible gambler. Mm -hmm. And then we went through copious amounts of money, uh, tens and tens of thousands of dollars. And uh, at about 2006, um, Kelly had said, uh, well, let me back up. Just before Kelly had said no more, I, our second son, Chad, we had an arrangement with our children that if they would, when they came of driving age, if they would save up their money uh, as much as they could or wanted to, we would match it as, as mom and dad and go buy a used car for them. So Chad is uh, 17. Uh, he has about $2,500 that he saved from working, and, uh, and we'd picked out a car. I went to put, he gave me his debit card with his PIN number on a Friday afternoon. I was to go put the down payment to secure the car so it didn't go away. Instead of doing that, I took that debit card, and I drove to Wendover. Over the weekend, $300 at a time, uh, Chad could see that money until there was none. Nothing he could do about it. It was over the weekend. That was before we had the ability to bank mm -hmm. um, on a computer. Mm -hmm. uh, he could just see it. So that money runs out. I end up coming home on a Sunday late afternoon, and uh, I pull into the garage, and there stands my wife with her hands on her hips, uh, which is the sign this isn't going to be good. And so I, uh, I get out of the car, and I walk up past her and said, I don't, I don't want to argue and fight with you, Kelly. Again, I was very selfish. Of, um, I knew what I had done was wrong, but 
I'm, I don't want to talk about it because that would just make me feel worse. I'm very much a, much a victim at that point, even though I'm the, the guy doing the victimization. I'm the guy taking money from a son, violating trust. So I walked past my wife and said, Kelly, I don't want to fight. I'm going to take a few things and go over to my folks' house. And uh, she turned to me and she said, take it all. And another catalytic event. She said, take it all. I'm done. I don't want any more of this. I remember responding, that's fine. I didn't want to be here anyways. But that was a lie. I had, I had nowhere really to go. That was my, that was my family. Uh, I grabbed some stuff, left. Mom and Dad uh, were out of the country on a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints in Greece. But they had an apartment, a mother-in-law apartment in the basement of their North Salt Lake home. And they would allow me to stay there. They didn't know what was going on. They knew there was stuff going on. They didn't know the specifics of it. So I go there. That was the worst neighborhood in the, on the planet for a guy like me to go because of the neighbors. The neighbor to the east was a guy named Robert D. Hales. Mm. <laughs> the neighbor to the west, with no fence between these homes and very close proximity, was David Bednar. And, uh, and, and so I, I, I'm not in a good place, but there I am living in that ward and in that, that neighborhood very close. Quickly, while I'm there, within a, few, within a week of while I'm there, I am introduced to a new coping mechanism to deal with my, my pain, if you will, and stress. And it was where I was introduced to crack cocaine. I remember the first experience with crack cocaine. It was as if all my solutions were fixed. It was as if everything went away. Uh, looking back, that was accurate. Everything did go away. <laughs> <laughs> everything, the car I was driving, any relationship that I had with my kids. Kelly was already on ice and she'd had enough, but siblings and parents, I began, because I'm not working, I began to fund that uh, purchase by taking things that didn't belong to me exclusively from my loved ones, from mom and dad's house. Um, they had a lot of yaro, yadro, mm -hmm. um, I think it's it, Italian porcelain right. mm -hmm. that the pawn shops loved. It kept me in business for a while and until uh, a sister one day came to visit and she saw some stubs and, and quickly found out that I was taking things that didn't belong to me and she said, you can't stay here anymore. And uh, again, I kind of said, fine. I got a lot of pride issues. <laughs> and uh, I had nothing now. So I packed all I had, which could fit in a the size of a carry-on suitcase. And uh, her husband, my brother-in-law, asked, you know, can I take you anywhere? And I said, sure. Would you take me to Pioneer Park? Which was where, at the time, I had been purchasing cocaine. And there I'm sitting at Pioneer Park, in the mid-spring of 2006, and I have nothing. And I'm very much alone. While I'm pondering, craving, and pondering, I see two North Salt Lake police cars drive up. And I knew they were out of their jurisdiction and had assumed they were looking for me. After some time as they walked in and out of the park, they found me leaning against a tree. 
Uh, long story made short, there I was arrested. And I would spend the next year and a half incarcerated at Salt Lake County Jail and Davis County Jail. It was there that, uh, it was there that the Father in Heaven reached out to me. I wouldn't wish jail on anybody, but I wouldn't trade it for the world right now. I remember being in Salt Lake County Jail and had, uh, had found a, a man that seemed to be trustworthy to me. Um, keep in mind at that time I'm 48, that's, that's a very old man in jail. So the, the people kind of left me alone and I'd met another man in there. His name was Jeff and we would play chess in the mornings and uh, we would talk about God. I was very spiritually bankrupt. I was angry at God. I was angry at family. The reason I was in jail, at least at that time, was because of my family. It wasn't because I was stealing their stuff. In my mind, it was family. And so I was angry. I had a lot of resentment with, with family, with God, with myself. But Jeff and I would talk about, about God and to play chess in the mornings because it was quiet. On one morning, a man interrupted our chess game and asked what this God thing is we were always talking about. I remember I was so spiritually bankrupt that I was offended that he interrupted our chess game to ask questions about God. Mm -hmm. That's how spiritually bankrupt I was. And uh, the long story there was uh, Jeff, not me, Jeff said, well, why don't you come and let's talk about this every morning. Again, I was annoyed and put out because you were interrupting my chess game. <laughs> well, we began talking uh, about the gospel of Jesus Christ with Jeff. He was from, Hun or with Jonathan is his name. Jeff and I would talk to Jonathan. And Jonathan was from Honduras and he had lots of questions. I found myself remembering things that I had memorized 20 plus years prior to that while on a mission. I know I'm not that smart. I know there's an authorship to being able to recall those things. And so I, I was aware that there was something going on transforming. I just wasn't aware exactly what it was. After many, many weeks, perhaps months, uh, each night I'm, I'm supposed to be transferred to Davis County Jail, which is where I was to serve the primary bulk of my time. And each night I would go away and tell these men, I'll probably be rolled up tonight, won't see you guys again, only to wake up to Groundhog Day. But this is going on and we're running out of things to teach Jonathan. And on one particular occasion, which would be the catalytic event for me, uh, we discussed what we could teach him. We, we taught him a lot. And somehow we, we get this idea of let's teach him about the atonement. And I remember thinking, that's great. I know everything there is to know about the atonement. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that night I went to my cell and I prepared with what I had, which would have been the, the standard works, Jesus the Christ, um, faith precedes the miracle, and, and came up with a presentation on, on the atonement. Next morning, which would change my life, began by talking to Jonathan about why we needed a Savior, what happened in the pre-mortal existence, talked about the birth of the Savior, talked about the uh, teachings, the miracles that the Savior participated in and performed, and culminated by talking about the Savior's being be betrayed by a friend, the events in Gethsemane, and ultimately a trial was held where he was condemned to die and, and the Savior dying on the cross. I really thought it was pretty good stuff. I remember, I remember thinking, I've got this one. 
I've finished it. We've finished it, complete it. Jonathan puts his hands across the metal table on top of mine, looks him in the eyes and says, in that Honduran accent, why? Why did he do those things? My first response was, well, are you slow? I had just told you why. And as I had begun to have these thoughts, I remember distinctly having the impression that felt like a, a father, or in this case, a grandfather, was putting his arms on my shoulder and looking me in the eye and said in my mind, Christian, this question that he asks you, you don't know the answer. You think you do, but you don't. And until you know and feel the answer, your life is going to be filled with struggles. So I listened to what was told to me in my heart and in my mind and repeated to Jonathan. Jonathan, the reason he did those things is because he loves me. A liar, a cheat, an addict, a thief. And if I would look to just change my ways, just try to correct them, he would forget about all of it. And his atoning power would be sufficient that I might find peace and solitude. That night, I went to my cell to be rolled up and would never see Jonathan again. Wow. It was then that I would finish my sentence in Davis County. It was around that time when my wife began to re-engage in the relationship. She was no longer going to be hurt, nor manipulated, nor was she going to enable me. I would uh, make many phone calls that were n not received and not answered. But I began to write, and then I remember it was then that she began to visit. She could see something happening. She had divorce papers that were being written by attorneys, but she felt compelled not to sign them, and she didn't. But they were there, and I, when I was released from jail, was made aware they were there. It was a motivator for me for a minute. And uh, so I get out of jail and uh, had some wonderful experiences there, that one in particular life-changing event. But I still hadn't learned how to cope with, with the communication and some of these pains. And I quickly, after jail, relapsed. And it was then, it, uh, in the, uh, December of 2007, when I realized I, I, don't, I can't do this on my own. I'm, I'm not living at home. I'm still on my own, trying to hold little jobs down at supermarkets and whatnot. And so the first time I made the phone calls to look for help and went to some treatment, spent 83 days in treatment, and I loved it. Uh, the therapist I had was, was there for me. Uh, he was able to help me understand the atonement better. He began the healing process with my family and uh, my children, all except Chad, whose car money I had taken. And so I spent 83 days in treatment. I get out, and then I go home. I'm excited. And uh, Kelly, had, I remember Kelly had had a 
a, a list of four things that were deal breakers in this relationship. I still remember them because she wrote them down on a napkin. <laughs> I still have the napkin. <laughs> the one was you can't use. That's fair. The second one was you got to get a job. That's fair. The third one was you need to get your driver's license, which was fair because I had been driving on a suspended driver's license and on probation, that's a problem anyways. It's against the law and it's a problem anyways. But the fourth one I chuckled at at the time, still chuckle at a little bit now, the fourth one was, you got to go to church. <laughs> I chuckle at that because in my mind I'm thinking, you think I've not tried that? You, 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 you think I haven't tried going to church and praying and reading scriptures? Kelly, that's just one more thing I fail at. It didn't work. But I, I committed. And uh, so six days after I got out of treatment, 83 days, plus the six, my stress crept up. And the net of that result was I, I used. I went down to Pioneer Park. I had $40 in my pocket with my daughter's car. My intent was just to calm down a couple hours and then go back. That lasted 10 days. I spent $40. I had a watch that was worth a few bucks to a pawn shop and a phone. And uh, I also had a, the car I was driving, which was my daughter's car, little Honda Civic, that was worth some money. That net result of that was it lasted 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, I, uh, there's no more money. There's no more way to get drugs. And uh, I picked up the phone of where I was crashing, checked my voicemail. They were all full. But I remember my counselor's messages. He left multiple. But the first, first few messages were Christian. This is Jason. Call me. The second and third it crescendoed to a place where the crescendo to me was, Christian, this is Jason. This is ridiculous. Call me. But the last message he left was the second great catalytic event in my life. And this is the message that he left. Christian, it's Jason. Have I told you I love you lately? That message gave me enough courage to pick up the phone and call Jason and say I'm not in a good place. I would go back for 30 more days. And that night, while I'm waiting for Jason to come and pick me up, a light bulb went off. The light bulb in my brain. It never worked. It never worked. Not one time in my life did the self-medication sustain itself and work effectively for me. Each time, I found myself violating my value system. I found myself not being able to stop. And so while I'm waiting for Jason, I made this commitment. I will never self-medicate using mood or mind-altering substances again. My life will have challenges. Figure a different way out. Find a different way to communicate through it. I remember that day really well. It just happened. February 4th, 2010. That was the last time I ever picked up. And I have made that commitment. Oh, Kelly and I, we don't have the perfect marriage. I don't think there is one, but our marriage is good enough and we communicate better. We're more honest. I, I openly communicate what's hurting me and where my stresses and anxieties are. 
and it seems to work. So I find I quickly after recovery, I'm recruited through the community of recovery to why don't you come and offer hope to others? Okay. I couldn't go back to the medical field. I didn't want to, but I couldn't if I wanted to. I had kind of ruined that. So I, I quickly hire on to a company and loved it. I, and I remember that first year I made like 27000 I had never worked so hard for so little and been so happy in all my life. And, uh, and from then on, I, I, I worked there for quite a while. Another company came calling, worked with Renaissance Ranch. And then there was this thing going on in my mind where this, the Spirit said, Christian, I want you to open one. And I'm a middle-class guy. I don't have large sums of money, and I already ruined my credit. So I'm going, what do you think? What are you talking about? And uh, I remember it kept coming back, kept coming back. And it was even pretty distinct that I want you, you have to use the evidence base, and they're appropriate. Use best practices. But I want you to create a culture based upon this. This has kept coming in my mind, based upon kindness, patience, long-suffering, love unfeigned, being clear with the expectations and boundaries, <coughs> and if you have to hold them, show an extra amount of love so that that person doesn't feel like you're their enemy. So as, as, as Father in Heaven would have it, we ended up, we were magically, miraculously gifted with the ability to open up in, in 2015 uh, Inspire Addiction Recovery. And it was that culture. It was magnificent. The culture was just wonderful. Uh, we had connection. I've learned through this process, I used to think the opposite of addiction was abstinence or not engaging in the behavior anymore. Well, that's true. It's part of it. It is not all of it. For me, the opposite of addiction now is connection. Right. It's finding that connection, connecting with people. Inspire, we had great connection. In my own personal recovery journey, the greatest connection I've had is with deity, particularly with the Savior. I thought, I'm the one, I heard you speak earlier about Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 46, where the Savior says, be perfect, even as my dad is perfect. I'm the guy, as a young man, thought that was, that was the expectation. That's what we were supposed to do. And so when I fell short of that, I would find myself feeling less than and not enough and found a way to medicate it. What recovery, one of the great gifts, and there's been many, but one of my favorite gifts of recovery has been this. Father in heaven never intended for me to be perfect. And Father in heaven in this life. And Father in heaven doesn't love me because I do or don't do anything. Nor does his wife, my mother who is in heaven, nor does the Savior. They love me because I am their child. That opened the doors of freedom for me to engage into the relationship with both them and the Savior. That if you can love me, not because I do or don't do anything, I'll look into that relationship. Mm. And it's been magnificent. And, and I've transformed that into my children's and our relationship. You are my child. I've got four of them and grandchildren. I just love you. I'm not going to enable you and love you inappropriately. I see a lot of times in the f field of recovery where we have loved ones loving their loved ones who's self-medicating literally to death. Right. And, and how toxic that is. And it's, it's, the struggle I see is 
coming from the culture of Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, we model that a little bit. We think what we're doing, which is enabling, is Christ-like love. And I think that's something that I'm, one of my messages is that may not be the case because I don't think Father in Heaven nor the Savior would love me to death in that way. They would love me by saying, for example, uh, one of the treatment centers that I went to bef that didn't work, I, I, called my, uh, I called my family and said, uh, this place sucks. It was, by the way, Renaissance Ranch. <laughs> I only went there for two and a half days the one time. I said, Dad, these, these guys are terrible. They're swearing, and uh, the food's terrible. It's just not good. Um, I, I think I want to go. And they did come and pick me up at that time. Years later, at another treatment center, I did the same thing, because I'm convinced the brain doesn't want us to heal, yeah. nor does the adversary. And somehow those two are intertwined at times. So the second time around, I called family and said, this place is terrible. I don't, I, it's not what we thought it was. Come get me. And I remember they had learned. They would learned how to love me appropriately because their response was, son, dad's response was, son, that sounds terrible. You don't have to stay there, but you can't come here. And one by one, I went down to family members and said the same thing to get the same response. Sounds terrible, Christian but you can't come here. And that gave me enough love to where I don't have any, very many options. I think I'll stick it out. And the net result is I'm given a reprieve today where I don't fight the, the compulsion to use, the obsession. And I know that was given to me by a lot of hard work, but ultimately by a gift that was given some 2,000 years, perhaps beginning in a, guard, in, in a garden, yes. Gethsemane. So since that time, we opened Inspire. Uh, two, a little over two years ago, Renaissance Ranch said, we like what you're doing. Would you mind? Let's buy you. Let's buy you. So we partnered up with them. And uh, we turned that, what was Inspire, into Renaissance Ranch for women, where women can go and be, begin healing. I'm not a, Inspire was a co-ed facility. And I think, you know, looking back, there's some advantages, but there's some risks at a co-ed. Right. And so I really, really like the, the idea of gender-specific. I've observed women can get some pain and trauma out in a gender-specific program that they can't in a co-ed, and, and it's magical there. Uh, do you have a picture? Do you want to show I that? Do. This picture, I, I, my daughter gave me this two years ago on a, on, a, on a birthday. And I don't know what you can see on the camera, but what I would love you to point out that she pointed out in this mug shot, um, if you could blow it up, there's no, and look at the eyes, there's not much in those eyes. There's a lot of darkness, a lot of pain, a lot of loneliness. But as we look, as she put this side by side, this other one, uh, there's a light. And I, uh, my witness and my testimony is that uh, God loves his kids, all of them, and that he will not forsake us that the Savior knows how to succor his people and that the atonement is real. And I think that, for me, anyways, is a testimony to the healing powers of the Savior's atonement. Right. Uh, one, side, one side note that I'll give you, that, that one experience I had while living as neighbors to Elder Bednar. And uh, one night I had come home from Pioneer Park with some things that I, some drugs, 
And I remember walk to get to my basement, mom and dad's basement. I had to walk on the west side, which was between Elder Bednar's house and mom and dad's house, and then down the stairs. I get to the top of the stairs at the end of the house, going to turn down the stairs, and I hear my name, Christian. And I look off to my left, and, and there's Elder Bednar flipping burgers and says, would you like a burger? I'm in this place of shame, this place. And I mean, quickly, oh, no, busy, got to go, and left. And, and just lots of shame. So I find some recovery, and I go to visit Mom and Dad at their house now. And uh, I pull up in the driveway, and, and there is uh, Elder Bednar on his front porch, and he's shining his golf shoes. Uh, he's got some serious mental health issues of obsessive-compulsive disorder. <laughs> that's, that's sarcasm. Uh, but he beckoned me over, and we visited for just a few minutes until it lasted like a little over an hour. Wow. And I remember he, he, we had some great experiences about the atonement, about addiction and recovery. But one thing that sticks out to me is he said, Christian, not too many years ago, the, the brethren of the church thought the plague or the curse of this generation was a disease contracted through inappropriate relations. He said we were wrong. And this would have been in, in 2000, late 2010-ish. He said we were wrong. That the curse and the plague of this generation is addiction in all of its forms and won't go away until the Savior comes a second time to redeem his people. I, uh, I'll never... I've never forgotten that, and I won't. And finally, to conclude, as an 18-year-old in preparation for a mission, received a patriarchal blessing. I think it's going to tell me I'm a big deal, probably going to be an apostle, maybe the <laughs> prophet. And instead, as an 18-year-old, never violated the word of wisdom in my life with two exceptions, sampling alcohol one time and the butt end of a cigarette. With, with that patriarchal blessing, thinking it's going to tell me I'm pretty important, the third paragraph in that blessing states this. Christian, the blessings of the word of wisdom will be made manifest in your life and in helping others to receive the blessings promised therein. So as an 18-year-old, I get this and I go, well, this is, this is silly. I have no idea. You just have to fast forward that a few years to where Father in Heaven, He knows His kids, knows our tendencies but offers hope. And so here we are 10 years later, and I am privileged to reach out to those who don't have much hope and family members who don't have much hope and say, what was this can be this with a lot of hard work, with professional therapists and counselors, and most importantly, with the enabling powers of the Savior's Atonement to take what was a stony heart and give me a new heart. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Wow. Thank you for having me. It's, it's such an amazing experience to be willing to share a core story, because I believe that's what Christ does when He comes into our lives. He shares Himself with us. And I think often we have a hard time believing that He is as real 
and as honest and as credible as he comes to us. It is. And he models that for us in such a beautiful way because what resonates is be therefore even as I am. You know, be honest, be credible, be real. And what happens when we do that? Then, you know, you quoted DNC 121 earlier. The last it says, and they will flow unto you forever without compulsory means. That no longer is it motivated by guilt or by shame or by, or by a feeling of, I have to do this, that's my dad. But they see this and they want, they want to be as credible and real with you as you are now with them. I like that, because it does make sense to me. It, it is not, it is natural. Yeah. It is natural for me. Yeah. I, I'm accused of being codependent as I offer hope to others, and I'm certain that I am. But I, I take solace that uh, one day if I meet, when I meet the Savior, that, uh, that I'm going to be okay, that I did everything I could to help those str struggling. Because I don't believe for a minute Father in Heaven nor the Savior loves me more than anyone else. Mm -hmm. I have four children. There's nothing they could do to stop me from loving them. And I've raised four teenagers. <coughs> I'm intimately familiar with disappointment right. and frustration. Yes, <laughs> intimately. <laughs> intimately. <laughs> but there's nothing, and I just want to convey that message to those that are struggling, that we can change. People do change. Brains change. Yeah. Hearts change. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Christian, and, thank you. And as we do it to the least of these, we do it unto him. Yeah. I think that is the amazing component. Everybody, this is Tom Harrison and Ken Krogan, and Christian Smith, currently with Renaissance Ranch. Um, having just heard Christian's core story, we're inviting all of you who have a core story just like this to share it with this community so that we can learn and grow from each other and from the redemption that's been made available in your life. Thank you, Christian. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. See you there. Yes. <laughs>